Hello. Good day, everyone. <clears throat> and uh, thank you once again for coming by my Merged Worlds Dungeons and Dragons story stream podcast bonanza panorama of fun. <laughs> I uh, appreciate you all once again coming and letting me tell my tale. So I'm pretty excited about that. Uh, tonight should be a reasonably big night. I have a uh, new material. And again, I, I want to stress that starting last week, the material that I'm telling now is all new material that's never been heard or played before. Um, so you guys are hearing it for the very first time. Uh, you're also the first to hear it. So I'm excited about it. So I'm going to give just a minute or so for uh, people to see if anybody else shows up. And then I'll do just a brief recap from where we left off. Um, it's been awesome seeing some uh, new faces pop up around Merge Worlds. I've been seeing some comments and been asked some questions on some of the older episodes from folks who have just recently discovered Merge Worlds. Um, so it's awesome myself to get to go back to those old episodes and, and listen to the questions they're asking so I can you know, fully understand what they're asking and answer them correctly. Uh, but it's fun to see uh, new people discovering it uh, all the time. So thank you. If you have someone you know who might like Merge Worlds, it would be awesome if you'd throw them a bone and make them aware that they can see it here. Uh, or, of course, it is available on Spotify and iTunes as a free audio podcast as well. I try to have each week's episode up within two to three days after it's here on YouTube, uh, schedule permitting. Oh, hello, Mr. Midnight. Kitty's here to say hi for a couple minutes. Not too long. Kirky's got a stream tonight. So, um, yeah, pretty excited about this. We're going to uh, be, once again, much like last week, jumping into some material that I've been prepping for a very, very long time. And uh, one of our good friends, fans, Mr. Jim, has to work tonight, so he will not be here uh, for the original. So uh, he'll be listening to this later. Um, so I feel like I should be like, Jim, when you're done, I'd love to hear your thoughts. At the second time, clearly, your fiancé lo uh, loves me more than you. So um, that hurts a little bit. Uh, but, you know, I'll, uh, I'll learn to deal. <laughs> all right. So, uh, all right. Let's just do a little bit of a recap, and then we'll jump in there. Everybody died. Well, thanks for coming, everybody. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I've mentioned that before, that every week when we used to start our D&D &D session... I always started the same way. Now, where did I leave off? Didn't I kill everybody? Like, no, you didn't kill everybody. I killed most people, though, didn't I? Like, no, no, I'm like, maybe that was this week. Maybe I'm confusing them. So, I guess we'll see. Um, so, uh, where we left off last week. So, last week was the beginning of a new era. Um, there had been many years of peace, and it had been, I want to say it's been 10, 9 or 10 years since the last real adventures happened and the children have been slightly introduced in previous episode kind of pointing them on their path and where they'll be going uh, although not all of them may stay on that path that's where they're beginning um, and where we began last episode was the serenity unity festival a very big the biggest event that goes on in serenity uh, commemorating the day that serenity became an actual kingdom uh, and it celebrates everyone uh, who is a part of that faction who fought to make it real and those who lost their lives to do so. I know, I see it. Um, so it's a big deal. And uh, everybody was preparing for it. 
the children had their roles to play. Princess Artis was going to be lighting the uh, official Serenity Flame, uh, which is a flame that's in a small park just uh, north of the river that the uh, they burns all the time, and they, they put it out in the morning of the festival, and she relights it that night. Um, normally, Queen Mercy does. This year, it was going to be Princess Artis for the first time. Uh, it was mid-festival. Well, Artemis was giving her prayer, Mercy Darty giving her speech, that Dandy start to realize something was wrong and putting all the pictures together, all the clues, she realized it right around the same time that Draven did. Um, and then the entire city was attacked by an army of undead. Dandy and Draven running through the crowd to try to get to where the children were on the other side of the lake, while Mercy and Artemis and the knights uh, had to do what they had to do to try to defend the city and save as many people as they could. Michael, who was the only one who was with the children, uh, with his magical spear Menander that is used to hunt undead, um, jumped into the battle uh, and was fighting with the children, not you know, with them on his side, against the undead. Everyone was doing what they could to stay alive. Um, and then Seraph and Deacon were taken down uh, by a couple of vampires. It was then uh, that they gave Michael a little bow and zipped off. And Michael was a little surprised that they bowed to him. And Menandra starts screaming in his head, they weren't bowing at you. And he turns around and coming out of the trees, walking towards them, was the man in the hat. The man in the hat has been my favorite villain I've ever created. And he's been in the shadows, in the wings of this story for a very long time. Only popping up twice, but doing so in ways that uh, certain people uh, have been worried about him and afraid of him for a very long time. Michael attacks him, of course, trying to defend the children. You kind of get out of here, Bobby? Come on. Uh, to defend the children. And, come on. So they, uh, he immediately realizes that he's outclassed. The man in the hat's just way stronger than him. And uh, he's just trying to keep him from the kids because he knows that Draven's on his way. And because Menandra can sense him. Uh, not as well as he senses other undead. Uh, because Draven, while he has that same type of aura about him, he's not technically dead. He's alive. He was born his way. Draven finally arrives, and he and Michael together are fighting the man in the hat, and even together the two of them are very, very much outmatched. Um, until the man takes Michael out of the fight, and then it's just him and Draven, and Draven does all he can, but the man in the hat finally takes him down as well, and it appears he's about to reach down and pick up or do something with Michael and Draven's body. When he hear, when the man that hears a voice uh, from behind him that has a strange echo, and turning, he sees that little petal, uh, Michael and Dandy's daughter, uh, who is training to be a wild mage, and who is half Kender, half human, had picked up Menandra and merged with it as well. Uh, the man that was very not happy about that situation, and so he turned and left, and as he walked away, the forces of the undead all crumbled around him all around the city. Our heroes, of course, once the city is safe, rush to the temple to see the injured children and adults. 
Uh, with healing and such, everyone's relatively okay. Um, and Dandy, Artemis, and Mercy leave everyone locked in Artemis's quarters in the temple, surrounded by a butt-ton of guards. Uh, it is the most protected place in probably the whole kingdom, with maybe one exception, and that is Mercy's secret treasure room in her castle that has the magical mirror that lets her talk to Darsh, which is where the three women head to. They leave. Uh, their spouses don't really want them to go, but they're like, listen, you know, part of this attack attacked Darsh's daughter who lives here with us. We have to let him know what happened. And they have their little globe they can talk to him, but it's not quite as good. So they're like, hey, we're heading to the mirror. We need to talk to you there. And Darsh heads towards the mirror on his island as well because he was not there for any of this. He was forced to miss the festival due to some events that were happening around uh, his islands that he got him involved. Um, and they make their way to the castle. They make their way down into the, through the secret door, down into the soundproof, very well magically hidden um, secret room where the mirrors is in order to open it up so they can talk to Darsh. As they're walking through the room, Mercy with Dandy behind her and Artemis in the back, hear a very, very quick, short intake of breath, like, from Artemis. They spin around, weapons ready. But someone is standing there with a knife at Artemis's throat, which causes them to freeze. And the figure, I'm going to read the last part of it again. Um, the three women stood, stood frozen, Mercy and Dandy seething in rage, and Artemis paralyzed in fear. Then she felt his strangely cold breath on her cheek and felt the brim of his hat press against her head as he leaned in to whisper into her delicate, pointed elven ear. I think it's time we have ourselves a little chat. And that's where we finished off last time. And the person in the room was Lucas. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Wouldn't that be a kicker? Um, no. So I'm sure you all can hopefully figure out who that is, right? It is no accident that I made a point of saying how well and securely guarded and magically protected that room is. Um, so, is, uh, pull in here. Oh, <laughs> you're welcome to post your guesses, Ashley. Um, that is unfortunately not the case. No, that is not the case. <laughs> Interesting. Interesting. Um, but no. So, today is going to be mostly story-based stuff. We're going to learn a lot of stuff. There's going to be a lot of conversation. Maybe some special things. Um, again, I don't know if I have enough for two and a half hours. This episode may be a little shorter than normal. Uh, as I'm writing all new stuff, I'm, I don't have any experience with how long it'll take compared to a lot of the other stuff we had. But as I move forward in this story, um, there are going to be scenarios, just like there was before, um, where I'm going to create dungeons with puzzles, and then they're going to, the characters are going to go through that. And even though someone may not play it, it's going to play out on stream and on story the same way all the previous episodes have. Uh, it's going to still feel like a group has played through this. I'm designing it that way on purpose. Um, and down the road, some of the dungeons and such, I may... Uh, I've been considering putting those together as pre-written adventures that other people might want to put in their own Dungeons and Dragons worlds. So that's something else I'm looking for as uh, 
you know, something I could give, maybe it's a, a perk or something I could sell digitally on the site. I don't know, but put together some pre-made stuff and uh, make that available to other people who might like to use it for their adventures. As well as go back and, and rewrite out and maybe do some of the early stuff, stuff that would work in other people's campaigns as well that aren't as much story-based. So just some things I'm talking about. If you have any interest in that type of thing, please throw it in the comments or join in the Discord or something. Let me know uh, something I'm looking at. But now we're going to jump into the story. Uh, there will be a, some reading. be a lot of reading, again. Um, but I hope that you enjoy where we're going to go with this. Okay. Let's begin. You ready, Ashley? <laughs> All right. Let her go, growled Mercy. You can imagine. Uh, here these three women are, are in the one place that they feel is super, super safe. Um in each other's company, which again, where they always almost feel the safest. I mean, I'm sure Artemis feels pretty safe when she's with Draven. Um, although this is the first time they've seen him fight something that he couldn't defeat. Um, I don't think that'll make them lose confidence in him, but that's something that they have to accept kind of for the first time. Here's someone who Draven took on head-on with Michael. The dude who's trained to kill undead, and this dude mopped the floor with him. The guy was so fast that when Draven was swinging and attacking his swords, he literally was slapping the swords away. He was moving so fast, he was slapping the flats of the blades. Not the sharp edge, obviously. They're sharp enough to cut anybody's hand. But he's literally just slapping them away. It, it kind of makes me think of some of like the X-Men movies where the guy's just pushing the bullets and moving stuff out of the way because he's going so fast. Um, just an incredible speed unseen before. So these three women are in this room. They, they think they're safest. They're about to call their confidant, tell them about all the horrible stuff they've had to go through tonight. When suddenly, that security is destroyed. That sense of safety is completely taken away. And that same person who defeated the strongest person in the group with ease is now standing there with a knife to the throat of Artemis. Mercy and Dandy are quite upset. But they also aren't stupid. They don't rush in to try to do anything, obviously, as fast as that guy goes. Because Draven and them would have given the full details of the fight to them by this point. As fast as he can move, there's nothing they could do to stop him before he could slit Artemis's throat. And of the three of them, Artemis being the only one who can heal the other ones, uh, not going to have a lot of options there. So she could very quickly die before anyone could save her. Um... And I did want to address in that moment, because it's something that's been asked. Can you come back from the dead? Right? Dungeons and Dragons, it's possible. Um, in this adventure, it's happened several times to characters, although I've kind of gone over those parts and never really said, in this fight, someone died, so so-and-so had to bring them back with the magic this or that. Like any D&D campaign, that's happened once or twice. Um, but more or less, that's as we've moved on, that's become less and less of, an, of a possibility. Um, coming back from the dead... I think is too easy in Dungeons & Dragons, <laughs> personally. And I think that it's something that, uh, if is even possible, should only be uber rare and uber difficult. So, uh, Artemis getting slit right now? No, there's not a person in Serenity who could bring her back. So, at this point, Mercy can only growl, let her go, as only Mercy can do. I intend to, replied the man. But first... I'll ask you to place your weapons down, as well as your ring, your highness. Yes, I know it's very exciting. 
Why? So we can't fight you? Asked Dandy angrily. Let us begin by making one thing very clear. If I wanted you dead, you already would be. There's not a power in this world that could stop me. I have come only to speak to you and no more. The man, got a kid here. Oh, good night. There we go. <laughs> the man's demeanor uh, was calm, almost emotionless, but there was no doubt he truly believed everything that he said. And after all that's happened, especially tonight, why should we believe you? Asked Mercy angrily. Because if you don't, your children will die. So will everyone you love, everyone you know, and serenity will burn. And everything you've built and everything you've fought for will be cast into a darkness whose depths you could never comprehend. Now put your weapons down. That last little bit was purely from memory because I just had a cat lay down on my book. One second, guys. Midnight. Come here, Bobby. Give me my book. Give me my book. You can lay in front of me, but you can't lay on my book. Okay. <laughs> Sorry about that. I've got a sick kitty, and he's being very, very clingy. Okay. There you go. Go on over. Go on over. So again, he says, now put your weapons down. The danger and venom in his words were enough to make Mercy and Dandy look at each other. After a moment, Mercy nodded and the two dropped their weapons to the ground. Mercy took off her magical ring that summoned her morning star to her hands and dropped it to the floor as well. Next, the man looked at Dandy. The kender rolled her eyes and then began pulling out the rest of her weapons and dropping them to the floor. It took a few moments, and even Mercy eyed the pile at Dandy's feet with concern. Even she had no idea Dandy carried that many weapons. And when I say that, Mercy's, like, legit concerned. Like, there's no reason for someone to have to carry that many weapons. Why? I mean, even Kender, which are silly, a normal Kender doesn't carry around that. They're knives and poison and everything from darts, daggers... She's pulling out a, you know, a belt. She pulls out, that's a sling. You know, she's literally covered in weapons. Uh, in her boot, in her upper sleeve, things of that nature. And Mercy knows she's got skills, she's got abilities, and she's really good with daggers. But especially, like, Dandy didn't go home and change. That meant she was wearing all those the entire festival. That's what Dandy wears all the time. Right? Like, why would she not? The festival with all of her friends, probably one of what should have been one of the safest events it had always been every year. There was no reason for her to, to be different uh, this time. Which means that's what Dandy carries with her all the time. And that's not how Dandy used to be. Not in the early days of Ventures where she was a little bit more carefree and such. But as uh, the world has started to take a darker turn, especially when it starts targeting her daughter, uh, Dandy is going to new lengths to make sure she stays, you know, you say protected. Finally satisfied, the man leaned in and spoke quietly to Artemis. Lady Artemis, I'm going to let you go now. You and your friends will come to no harm, as I have promised, as long as everyone behaves. The knife moved away from her neck and Artemis stepped away. Mercy grabbed her and pulled her behind her, and they moved step several steps further away than before. 
Mercy took a moment to quickly check and verify that she had no injuries. You know, make sure she hasn't been cut or anything like that. The dude's blade was fast, but the guy's got a still hand. Turning back, she saw the man had stepped back and was casually leaning against the wall, watching them. It was clear he did not feel he was in any danger. Speak your words, demon, said Mercy, seething. We've agreed to hear them and nothing more. You have, he replied, but we're still short one member of this little gathering. You will need to call on Lord Dosh, please. What I have to say will concern him greatly as well. And you can imagine that this guy that they fear and hate and loathe is like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to talk to you, but do me a favor. Open up that portal that would let the most physically strongest person of your group walk into here. That's showing a lot of faith and a lot of confidence. Because if he knows anything about them, which is to assume he does, then he has to know about Darsh. He was on Darsh's island at one point, right? Which means adding Darsh to this mix is not concerning him at all. Not in the tiniest of bits. Or does it? Mercy starts to make her way to the mirror, and the man says one thing to stop her. And your highness, it is imperative that you ensure that Darsh stay on his side of the mirror. He must not come through. I can promise you, his daughter's life depends on it. Mercy looking at him even angrier now, but with a bit more concern. Like, they know he's a, he's, he's a jerk, and he's evil, and all going to attack them. But now he specifically said something about Darsh's daughter. Of all the children, he specifically mentioned something about Darsh's daughter. That's a little unexpected. Mercy goes to the mirror and says the command word that opens it as a means of communication. When that happens, it's almost like there's no mirror there. It's like they're looking at each other. You know what I mean? It's so crystal clear. It's like no reflective surface at all. And that's going to go over real well with Darsh. Ashley says, that's true. Um, you can imagine um, that the mirror itself is smaller than Darsh, right? Like, you can imagine that. Darsh is a huge dude, and he's got horns, right? He's a wide guy. Walking through regular doorways is sometimes hard. On Mercy's side, the mirror is Mercy's size. Oh, a little bit taller. You'd say probably like six, six feet tall. You know, six, seven feet tall. A little bit bigger than the average person. On Darsh's side, his mirror is a little bit larger, but it's still not big enough for a minotaur. But as soon as you step to it and go to go through, you go right through it. It's it's just like, it's not like on the other side, it's not like on the TV show Stargate, where you see the back half of them as they go through. As they touch the mirror, they disappear and they come out the other side. Um, so I did want to say that you couldn't go halfway through and turn around. You couldn't... You know, have half of one arm on each side of the mirror. That's not possible. The second you, you use the second command word, because there's two. One opens it up for communication, and one opens it up as a portal. Once you say that command word, the second any part of you would touch where that mirror is, you are now on the other side of it. It's almost like a teleportation. You're not actually stepping through as a physical step. Um, and I did want to clear that up because it was a question I was asked a little while ago and I promised I would address it the next time we dealt with the mirrors. Um, 
So yes, even though it's Darsh could literally just reach out and touch the mirror and he'll be standing on the other side in the exact same position, pointing away from the mirror. Like it's not like he's immediately looking at the mirror. He would you like and he's on the other side. So I wanted to address that. Mercy, of course, opens the mirror, and Darsh is standing there pacing back and forth, and he steps closer. It begins to immediately start talking. Mercy, I was worried. That took a lot longer than you thought. Is everything... And then over Mercy's shoulder, of course, he can see the man in the hat, leaning casually against the wall. Now, from Darsh's point of view, he's in the back against the wall. They are, he already knows they were attacked by the man in the hat. Mercy would have given that. Hey, listen, we were attacked. It was undead. Man in the hat. Your daughter is okay. The children are fine. With some minor injuries. Your daughter didn't take any. Everybody's okay, but we need to give you more details. Man in the hat was here. He was a part of the book. You can imagine that there was at least a, a brief synopsis of what happened, but they're coming here to go into much more detail. All he sees is that person standing behind him, and in that moment, he may be thinking, they don't know he's there. He could be just popping behind them. Now, remember, Darsh immediately pops a weapon into his hand. He's got that bracelet thing that lets him store weapons. I think, I think I said it holds up to five or six of them. And it'll store them as it literally pops it out. If he takes it off, he can't get the weapon. They're in there. He has to have it on and wearing it. And he can pop one back in using a magic command and pop out another one. But each one takes an action. There's a, there's a bit of a delay in that. Or he could just drop one weapon, let it hit the ground, and pop out another one. But he can't put the other one back in unless it's in his hand and he's using the command word to do so. So seeing this, Darsh immediately pops out his sword. He's got a big sword. And starts moving towards the mirror. And you see his mouth about to open like he's about to say the command word. And Mercy's like, you know, stop, no, stop, Darsh, stay where you are. You know, you, you can imagine frantically because they don't know what the man in the hat means. If Darsh comes through, will the man in the hat kill the daughter or hurt the daughter? Is Darsh's act of coming through going to cause something to happen? They don't know the source. They only know that they hate the man in the hat. And his words have let them know that something will happen to Darsh's daughter if he comes through. Not all the children, but specifically, something will happen to Darsh's daughter if he comes through that mirror. And they love all of them love the children like they're their own. I mean, they view them almost like community children at points. I mean, they all love their own, you know, but there's, there's kind of that feeling to it, and they would never want something like that to happen. So they immediately call him. Darsh stops confused, and Mercy gives just a little brief of what just happened. Listen, we, came, we know he's there. You can't come through, or something may happen to Maeve. Now, that's the type of thing that's going to stop a death. What do you mean? Are you threatening her? Is he threatening her? Who's threatening her? What's going on? What do you mean by that? And Mercy's like, I can't be sure. I only know that when we came here, he was already in here. That's going to shock Darsh. Right? Because Darsh knows how well protected that room is. But, if you'll remember, in the last adventure where the were-sharks were years ago, after everyone had walked through the portal. Dandy turned and saw the man in the hat in Darsh's hidden underground caves, which were also overwhelmingly magically protected and only able to be opened with a very special key that only three people have. 
This means he's able to get into both of them. And of course, Darsh has done many things to re-increase the spells and protection on his own, but he thought that maybe there was a weakness in his own defenses. Never really crossed his mind that he may just show up in Mercy's. Can the man in the hat open portals to places? Hmm, interesting concept. Maybe we'll see. So, the man says something minor like, tell him, tell him of tonight, tell him what happened, tell him the events. He's giving him a moment to fill it in, because Darsh is clearly in the, in the dark here. He got a two-minute conversation of, hey, this entire kingdom was attacked by undead. The guy we've been afraid of for 15 years just popped up and kicked Draven's butt. Really. Maeve is okay, but the children were attacked too. See you in a few minutes. And then, you know, quick, that's like getting a text message of that and then waiting on the phone call to hear the rest. He's been waiting to hear. So Mercy goes through and tells him the details. She takes her time. She's buying some time. She's thinking things out as well. She's trying, how did he get in here? How can I alert someone for help? Because that thing is magically protected from sound as well. It's meant so they can have conversations down there without being overheard. It was never thought of that the person would be inside the room. She can't get past him. He's leaning against the wall next to the stairs that lead up. There's nothing she can find that would alert anyone that they're down there and that they need help. Her ally, Flynn's upstairs. He knows they're down there. And I'm sure, you know, he's used to letting Mercy talk to Darcy as long as they want. He's in no hurry. He's just going to sit up there. He may be out doing some other things in the castle, helping to defend this, make up for the things that happened. He would have no reason to think that they're taking too long. A lot went on. He has to assume that these three people who are viewed as leaders and commanders talking to Darsh, who's Dar, they're going to take a while. <clears throat> But Mercy goes through and explains what she can. Everything she can think of goes through all the details. Dandy chimes in with what little bit she saw. She arrived right near the end. She could, you know, where uh, she saw Draven fall barely, and then step, kept on going through. And then she saw Petal picking up Menandra, and she freaked out and ran to try to stop that. <clears throat> Finally, they tell everything that needs to be told. And they kind of all stop, and then they all kind of turn around and are now looking at the man. And he kind of leans away from the wall. And he's like, now that that's out of the way, we can finally begin. Again, he's not, he doesn't have what I would call, and it may come off that way, so that's what I want to clear. He's not like talking rude or smartass or anything. He's very emotionless. Now, now that that's done, we can get done with what needs to happen. But there's always a hint of dangerousness in his voice. He always has that, and you're going to do what I say, or else. <clears throat> so again, he says, now that that's out of the way, we can begin. I know you have many questions. Know that I won't be answering most of them. I shouldn't even need to have this conversation. But things are escalating faster than we expected, and our hand is being forced an odd thing. He looks directly at Artemis. Right at her. And says, why do you think I'm here? 
Artemis, fighting back her tears of frustration and anger. Artemis cries a lot. That's just how Artemis is. <laughs> fighting back her tears of fear and anger. Exclaims, you're here to kill my son. Yes, he replied coolly. I was sent to Kier to kill your son. And if I need to, I will. And let me tell you, tonight's events have moved us much closer to that becoming a reality than you will have liked. But why, Artemis pleaded. He's just a boy. Man casually dismissed her words like didn't even pay attention to it. I'm going to give you all one chance to keep this from happening. The only chance anyone will ever have. So in that brief moment, you can imagine like, they're, yes, he just admitted, yeah, I was sent here to kill your son. And if I have to, I will. There's, there's no sadness, no regret, no, if I have to, you know, it's not, it's like, yeah, if I have to, I will. But I'm going to give you one, the only chance anyone will ever have to stop that from happening. And he continues. You must send the children to the kingdom of Firemoon as you planned. And they must go without you. Everything depends on this. Now all four of them are shocked and confused. Nobody expected that. Everything, you sitting there, he's like, yes, I'm going to kill your son unless you send these kids on vacation. Such an unexpected thing because it's, it's not important. It's such a trivial matter. Who cares? After everything that's happened tonight and everything that's happened beforehand leading up to this, this guy speaks to them for the first time in 15 years, admitting he's here to kill his son, and he wants you to send your kids somewhere without you. <clears throat> and Artemis asks, why? Why do you care? Why is something so trivial so important? And he replies, because that's where everything begins. That is the first step on your son's path. And he steps, takes a few steps towards them, of course. Artemis is a little bit behind Mercy. Dandy and Mercy are kind of a little bit in front of her. You know, she's, it's like the three of them in a line, but Artemis is a step behind. <clears throat> Every time something funky, Mercy and Dandy kind of scooch a little bit closer together, putting Artemis behind them. That's just how it always has been. He takes a few steps forward, and they do the same thing defensively, you know, like, okay, are we going to confess the cups? Like, what's going on here? And looking at Artemis, he says, And the last of your line will be a great king, for he shall be the child of destiny. Now, those are the first two lines of the prophecy told by Draven's mother hundreds of years earlier. The last of Draven's father's line. This was told to Draven's father. I need to stress that. The last of your line will be a great king. For he shall be the child of destiny. It's what made Draven's older brother kill his father and his siblings. Thinking to make himself the last of the line. Unknowing that Draven even existed. 
these prophecy has dictated almost all of Draven's life, and as such, much of now of Artemis's and definitely Seraph's. Because at this point, it implies one of three things. Draven will die and Seraph will be the last of the line. Or Seraph will die and Draven will be the last of the line. Or Seraph will have a child. And the line continues. And the prophecy has nothing to do with him. Those are really the only three outcomes that can come from that, based on what they know and how they've interpreted the prophecy. He reads those two lines to Artemis. And he keeps looking at her. And the other ones are defensive, but Artemis is like, hates those lines, hates hearing that prophecy. But he's not done. He continues. Many years from now, your son will have to make a choice. A decision that will determine the fates of millions of lives and the future of this entire world. I was sent here in case he makes the wrong choice. And should that happen, I will take his life without hesitation. Again, they're dumbfounded. I'm here in case your son makes a wrong choice sometime. Huh? What? And you can imagine there's a couple of little questions like, I, I don't understand, you know, why is this so important? What choice are you talking about? These are the type of questions you can imagine all three of them kind of blurting out at the same time. And he just kind of stands there and look at them. And then Darsh asks a question that's more important. Darsh will ask, all right then, mister, mister, whatever you want. All right then, man. If you believe the prophecy's going to come true, then how in the world do you think you're going to kill him? Because the one line the man didn't read was the last line of the prophecy. And only the blood of his kin can destroy him. The man's hand raises goes inside his jacket. Remember, he's got a long like, trench coat jacket on. Puts his hand in and then pulls something out of his coat. And both the hearts of Dandy and Artemis go cold. What he holds in his hand looks fragile, dainty, like it would shatter if he even slightly squeezed it. And yet both of these women knew that the item in his hands is stronger than any steel and its blade is razor sharp and even from across this dimly lit room they can see the crimson fluid that still fills the dagger and still runs wet on its blade a blade full of draven's blood How did you get that? Artemis barely whispers in shock. Dandy goes, It was destroyed when Daedalus died. The man gets almost what appears to be a tiny bit of a smile. No, not destroyed. Just taken and protected until it was needed. <clears throat> Sorry, and protected until it was needed. 
You're like, but how? And he says, there was one more person in that tower that day. Someone was there with you, and you had no idea. And they were watching, and they were waiting. And when the opportunity came, they snatched it up from right in front of you. And they kept it until it was given to me. He then slides it back inside of his jacket. You assume into some type of sheath. It's upside of his jacket, kind of like that movement. Pulls his hands back out. The crystal dagger was one of the three items that the prophet had told Draven would be needed to defeat his brother. It was the first of the three they went and got. It was in a very hard dungeon that uh, took Artemis, Michael, and Dandy to go through. It was a, a puzzle dungeon. It was a rogue's dungeon. There wasn't really any combat in there. The crystal dagger, with the right command word, will absorb almost any substance and using it to heighten its own ability. You stick it in a fire and say a word, it's going to come out, and now it's a flaming dagger. And whatever abilities has, it never harms the wielder. You know, if you're holding it, you're not going to catch on fire, even though holding it to a tree would cause it to burst into flame. There's a command word that will drain it of that essence, clearing it out for something else. You can't put something else in there until the original thing is taken. And in the final bite battle with Daedalus, Draven understood what had to happen. And he didn't have the strength. Artemis had to stab him in the chest and drain his blood into it. And obviously not all of it, but some. And then used that combined with Menandrid is what killed Daedalus. But never in that story did I ever say anything about what happened to the dagger. Never, ever mentioned it. And I'll have you know that even the players who played this campaign for years after this never once asked me what happened to the dagger. I think they all assumed that killing Daedalus caused it to be destroyed, or, or the the power of it was used because it wasn't there. After Daedalus died, it wasn't there, they would have just picked it up. But the crystal dagger still exists. And now it is in the possession of the man in the hat. And if the prophecy is true, it contains the only thing that could kill the last of the line. There's a callback for you. Mercy, of course, she knows what it is from the description, but it doesn't quite hit her with the cold heart like because they saw it, right? She holds knows all the details of that story. I'm sure they said, yeah, and after we killed him, pff, the dagger was gone, and no one thought different. But now, Artemis and Dandy, you can imagine in their head rolling back, who else was there? Couldn't have been one of the tribals. They knew they were there. He just said someone you didn't know was there. But the only one in their mind right away is Shastra. Shastra jumped out and burst into flame and they thought she was dead, but turned out she hadn't died. Was Shastra there still watching? But in their minds, that's the only person that either of them can think of that would have been there that they might not have seen. But 
Menandra didn't say anything about it. If it was any other type of undead, Menandra should have been able to sense them. So you can imagine. Mercia Gerson, like I said, exclaims, this makes no sense. None of this makes sense. Because again, you have a crystal dagger full of my friend's blood that you're going to use to kill his son if he makes the wrong choice about something significant in the future. And to make sure that happens, you want me to send him on vacation to a friend's house. I mean, that's basically the essence of what has just been said here. But the man's not finished yet. And he continues by saying, Seraph has a path. And if you can keep him on that path, he's going to make the right choice. But if you do not, and he leaves that path, everything is lost. He says, the lives and fates of your children intertwine with this path. They will help shape him into the person he's going to be. Everything, all of it, begins at Firemoon. They have to go. Some heavy stuff. Throw on some people. And then Mercy asks, why did you attack them? Why did you attack Serenity? Why did you attack our kingdom? And he replies, I didn't. Those dead do not serve me. And Dandy exclaims, Then why did you attack Michael and the children? And he looks at her and he says, I didn't. He attacked me. In fact, was all I could do just to keep his injuries to a minimum. But I could not allow any of them to interfere. In fact, if it was not for me, the death toll of your Serenity citizens would be much, much higher. Mercy's like, you destroyed the undead. Gives a bit of a nod. If you remember, Petal held out that held out Menandra. He was not happy. He gave a little nod and turned and walked away. And as he did, the undead around the kingdom began to crumble and fall apart. Artemis asks, Well, if it wasn't you, then who? And why did they attack Serenity? man will say, why? It's much less complicated than who. Why? It's because there's a dark force working against you. Against all of you. A man who's been trying to kill Seraph for a very long time. He's a dark shadow. A man of darkness. He attacked your kingdom. And Dandy's like, Who? Because you know, they didn't see anybody else. They saw a bunch of undead. They saw the man in the hat. Who? Who else? You'll see. 
you've met him before many years ago he and another group of undead and a little child vampire tried to kill Seraph when he was just a baby you remember that don't you the day Michael's soul became trapped inside Menandra of course they remember that they were returning from one of the other towns they just grand opening if you will of one of the new temples there and at night they were hanging out around the campfire when suddenly a force of undead attacked a force that include, included multiple vampires but one in, protector, in particular Shastra the child vampire and a dark figure they never saw his face they didn't know who he was And no one ever asked about him again. Here or back when we were playing. No one ever asked about him ever again. <clears throat> the man continues. He says, this figure is... This figure, this minion of darkness has tried countless times to kill your son. And even then, on that field, he knew he would fail. It was vanity that caused even him to attempt one of his greater weaknesses. But the darkness that even now plots against you now fully understands he can't kill Seraph. And so instead he will try to keep Seraph away from his path. He'll do everything he can to lead him from it, and instead towards the wrong choice. He does not need to kill your son to win. He has only to corrupt his destiny. There's that word again. Destiny. Part of the prophecy. Uh, Glitch version says, I wish I were half as good at planting story seeds that my players forgot. <laughs> um, you know, one thing uh, that I found really helps in that regard is, of course, making it important in the moment, but not dwelling on it, and very soon after giving them something much more important to think about. That figure appeared, and at the end of that adventure... The very last thing that happened was the man in the hat. Boy, did they remember him. So as he said, he does not have to kill Seraph to win. He only has to corrupt his destiny. Now, of course, they remember that fight, right? Figure darkness. They never saw his face. Wearing gloves, whatever. It was more of just a shadow than anything else. Shastra really, really seemed to be the primary villain in that point. She was the one doing all the talking. She's the one that was screaming at them. He's going to kill the kid and attack. And then it was her and Michael that were fighting on the field. And that was also the time that Draven returned from the dead at that point, along with Tevin, the much well-aged and way more powerful Tevin. 
was able to destroy some of the undead where even Artemis couldn't. Odd timing, right? What are the chances? And when this person tried to kill Seraph, fate brought things into play that kept it from happening. From the sounds of it, he's tried again and again, many times. Yet every time he tries to kill Seraph, something keeps it from happening. So he knew then, but now he's fully sure he can't kill him. He doesn't have to. Now it's about corrupting his destiny, taking him off the path, and leading him the wrong way. So as you can understand, right, that that's going to make them mad, right? Suddenly someone who I'm sure, unlike us, would have at least paid a bit more attention to and never saw again, uh, but at the time, that person very much felt like a minion of Shastra. But now it seems maybe it's the other way around. Maybe Shastra needed this person's help to even make the attempt. Or maybe that person was using Shastra to try to kill Seraph. What does it matter if he has a reason to do it? If she wants it that bad and he can give it to her, she hated Draven. And wanted to kill Seraph. Sure, she'd take any help that said they could help her, right? Especially if a bunch more undead and vampires are involved. Who made the vampires? So all these things are running through their minds right now. They're putting together, imagine if you will, the red strings on the board that are starting to connect events as he's talking. They're starting to remember things that seemed insignificant that now maybe you're not. And things that were way important might not have been important as they thought they were. Thinking through it all, Mercy's the first one to speak. And that's why Serenity was attacked tonight. That's why we were attacked. And the man says, yes. So the whole reason that we were attacked. And you can see she's getting madder as she's talking. Her voice is getting louder. She's getting angrier. All of this happened to stop the children from going to firemen's. And again, the man says, yes. Now, Murray's, she's furious at this point. So my kingdom was attacked. My people were killed, slaughtered, just to scare us? And the man in the hat looks right in her eyes and says, Tell me, your highness, did it work? And as you could only expect Mercy to do, she screams, hauls off, and kicks her morning star, which goes kind of flying through the air, hits one of her shelves, breaks it, they fall down. It's still sticking under the wall. She bangs on a table several times. She's mad. And this brings a new weight to everything. Right? You can imagine everybody standing there thinking that. 
he attacked us and our friends one back supposedly he's a, he's tried to kill Seraph times between then and they're trying to put those times together right he's tried time and time again what times did we have when were we fighting someone that maybe we weren't fighting who we thought we were maybe something was in the wings what's going on here when were these times that someone's tried to kill Seraph and failed and then they all hear that whoever it is this dark figure is willing to and is powerful enough to send an army of undead to slaughter her people their people so that they'd be too scared to send their kids away without them lives were lost for that tonight mercy has probably one vice I know, maybe vice may be the wrong word she has one I guess you should say personal weakness in that if there is any way in the world that she can make a situation feel like it was somehow her fault she will in her mind it was her job to protect the people of serenity not only that people from all over came to this festival faith that this was a place of safety and that she would take care of them and instead someone that they fought in the past someone that is an enemy used that opportunity for something as petty as to scare them was willing to slaughter how many people they're still trying to get the cult probably at least several hundred died maybe even more luckily it ended faster than they thought it would still those people died just to scare them that's got to hurt you know makes you think was this the right idea building serenity right we brought these people here because we wanted to make them safe but we have things we're pissing off out there and those things are coming back and using our people against us and that will have an effect on a lot of things moving forward on how serenity is run and protected um, there will be some very large changes in the defense moving forward as much as they hate everything that he's saying and the just casual unemotional way that he's saying it everything he's saying makes sense they see the connections between the events that they did not see until they were pointed out to them. Which, of course, you can imagine they'd be kicking themselves for that as well. How did we not see that? We're supposed to be smart. We're supposed to be leaders. Not only that, we have some of the smartest people in the world around advising us. None of us put any of these things together. I gotta take a drink for this next part. Uh. Artemis begins to take several steps forward towards the man. Instinctually, 
Danny and Mercy reach out to stop her. She motions them to stay. She crosses halfway across the room. He says, I want to ask you a question. And he looks at her again. No emotion on his face. And he says, I know you do. But I have to warn you, sometimes knowing the answer is much worse than not knowing at all. Racking my brain to think of who the person could be and I'm coming up empty. <laughs> I wonder, some of you have been very invested in the story, if any of you expected it where we are so far to have come to where we are. Is this what anyone expected? Um, you don't have to answer now, but remember this moment. At this point, had anything happened that you'd expected? But, she says, I want to ask you a question. And he says, I know you do. But beware. Sometimes the knowing is far worse than not knowing at all. Artemis stops for a moment. She considers this. Artemis is a smart lady. She's a leader herself. Very intelligent. She considers this. It's not bad advice. But after a moment of thought, she looks at him and says, I still have to ask. And the man closes his eyes and has a little sigh. Like, uh, and nodding, he looks at her and says, then ask your question. Artemis stood only a few feet from this man, yet she felt a thousand miles away. Forcing down her fear, she spoke the words she knew would change everything. Who sent you? She asked. Who sent you to kill my son? The man stares into her eyes and deep into her soul. He did, the man replies. And then there was a ripple, like a single drop of water hitting a completely still pool, a tiny ripple in the fabric of reality in front of them. And the spell that had been cast upon the man, that kept his identity locked and hidden away, shattered and disappeared. And with it gone, the man was no longer hidden. And though to the four heroes, the man had not changed at all, they could now see him for who he truly was. Oh, my dear boy, whispered Artemis. What has been done to your deacon? I'm going to give you guys a second on that one. Because that is who the man in the hat is. Standing before them. As you can imagine, 
They were all flabbergasted, completely blown away. The boy they knew now stood in the man before them, tall, strong, and with a power greater than any of them had ever seen. He stood there, but changed, different, no longer human. Like older Deacon? Yes. Much older Deacon. Yes, clearly it's a grown... Yeah, I should clarify that. It is a grown... It's not the kid. It is a grown adult version. He still looks the same. Same haircut, same fangs, same pale skin, eyes a bit yellow, dark short hair. I did comment on dark short hair. Same clothes. Clearly an older and much more powerful and no longer human version of Deacon. Oh, baby Deacon's still there. Deacon then... Oh, no. Darsh, so I'm sorry, is the next to ask. Darsh will be like... And he, Darsh has got his hands on the outside of the mirror, like, looking through, like, what the hell? He's like, how can this be? Because, you know, they all can... I mean... He knows Deacon as well. You would assume in the last 10 years he's been coming in and out. He recognizes the kid. He's like, how can this be? And Deacon says, Seraph's path path will take him far. Farther than any of you have ever been. He and his friends will go to places and have experiences in lands unknown to you now. And all of it will lead him to his choice. And on that path there will be danger. And there will be loss. And Seraph will have to make other choices. And then kind of looking at himself, he says, and some of them with dire consequences. Artemis gasps, Seraph did this to you. Shocked by the revelation. Yes, he replies. And you must know, I hated him for it. I despised him. But I have moved past my hatred. For me, that was a very long, long time ago. And as they say, with age comes wisdom. Yeah, there's been hints to that. Uh, There was times when Menandra said she could sense that there was something. He couldn't sense him, per se. But looking at him, Michael knew he was some kind of undead. Some kind. I wonder if this has gone anywhere you thought it would. (laughs) So you're saying you're from a time that's yet to happen? The future? asked Dandy. Yes, Deacon replied. Far, far from now. And in Dandy's next question, her friends could hear a concern in her voice. 
Is this real? Deacon smiled at the small woman. You and Petal always ask the best questions. Yes, this is real. From through the mirror, Darce asked, what does that mean? What, what does he mean? What does she mean? Is this real? Dandy turns and looks at everybody. We've all been to the sands, says Dandy, a hint of desperation in her voice. We entered the books there. If he truly is from another time, how do we know that we're not just a recreation? What if we're just another story in one of the books? Well, that was a punch in the gut to all of them. They had been to the sands and entered into a book and relived the lives of those who came before them. And in a moment of wondering your own reality, is this real? Am I the real version of me? Danny put those thoughts together first. There's only a moment of silence. Well, he obviously lets them deal with that. And he says, as I say, this is real. I'm not in a book. If you'll remember correctly, things in a book cannot be changed. You can live through them. But you can't take anything back out. And you can't change history. You're just living through a version of it. Our enemy has come back here to change what has happened. And so I've had to come back here to try to stop him. Those things could not happen through a traditional means in the sands. If it will help ease your minds, this might help. He reaches up and he unbuttons a couple of the buttons on his shirt. And he's real slow about it. You know, very suave. He unbuttons a button, unbuttons a button, and unbuttons a button. And then opens his shirt up. And on his chest, right over his heart, is a glowing blue magical rune. But that's not all. Uncovered for the first time, hanging from his neck, is a magical medallion that they're all quite familiar with. Draven wore it for a very long time. The kind of magical medallion that keeps anyone from knowing where you are and what you're thinking. He says to them, I could have never traveled back here if it were not for the help of the Keeper. He understood how important this was. So this version of Deacon is saying that Seraph sent him back here. And that if he was to make the wrong choice, Deacon was to kill him. And the only way they could come back was through the Keeper of Time, their old friend Tobias, whose job it is to police the timelines, if you will. His job is to guard time itself, as primarily the Sands. 
and the knowledge that's shared there. But he's not the only way to come back in time. He's just one of the easiest. Mercy says, so you're from, so from when you're from, Seraph has already made the right choice. Yes, says Deacon. And this man has come back to change that, and you're here to stop him. Yes, says Deacon again. And if we kill him, won't that stop him? Can't we just find him and kill him, says Dandy. I mean, that would fix this, right? We find him, we kill him, problem solved. No, says Deacon. It is not within your capabilities to kill him. Should the day come when his life is taken from him, it can only be by Seraph's hand. And Artemis, again, growing concern, then how do we defeat him? How do we save my son and the other kids, and the other children? How do we stop someone that already knows what's going to happen? And Deacon says, by keeping Seraph on his path, by ensuring he grows to become the man he needs to be to make the right choice when the time comes. You must do all that you can to keep things from changing. You're very well. You're very uh, welcome there, Dylan26. Thank you so much for asking, coming by and saying hi. Appreciate it. You must do all you can to keep things from changing and making him go astray. And Danny says, but why is this choice so important? Why does so much depend on just a single moment? Whoa, chubby. <laughs> Sorry, cat made a big jump. <laughs> why is this so important? Because that's why we're all here, replies Deacon. It's why all of this exists. It's why everything that has ever happened has brought us to this time and this place. The game has begun. What game? asks Artemis. <laughs> Lock him in the basement. <laughs> what game? asks Artemis. The game of the gods replies Mercy, surprising Artemis. Years ago, years, when Zoltan and his mirror appeared in this very room, he touched my stomach and told me the game had begun. And one of the last pieces was now in play. I found out I was pregnant, pregnant with Artis the next day. And then Darsh replies. He spoke of a game to me as well. The day he appeared to me to warn me that Oramon was marching for serenity, I asked him why he involved himself in our affairs. And he said the game had begun and that we all had important parts to play. And Artemis says, but what does that mean? What is this game? And why are children meant to be pawns for it? That was two more callbacks for the record there. He did in fact say that to Mercy a long time ago. 
And he did say that to Darsh in that moment, when Darsh said, why do you... Because the game has begun, and you and your friends have important parts to play. Long ago, more references to what is happening right now. All of it led to this. And so Deacon tells them, in the beginning, before reality existed, there was something else. What? I do not know. I dare say no one living does. But it was from that place that the gods came, and together created our existence. Oh, hang on. I should have started to call back Kelly. Um, what they did not know was that two elder gods had followed them, hidden themselves inside of powerful artifacts they waited, while their minion Zoltan moved events per their instructions. Chaos and order have always been at war. The two gods not only fight for control of their physical form, but also constantly sought to prove which was the stronger force. It was in this new reality they finally saw a chance to once and for all prove who was the strongest. And so they waited until the right souls were born. Two brothers, one soul touched by order, the other touched by chaos. Now, in case you may not have been here in the past, I would like to stress that touched means something important in merge worlds. You can't have treats. In the moment when a soul is first created, sometimes a, here you go, a god will feel drawn to that soul in that tiny microsecond. Here, buddy. In that tiny microsecond, they'll feel pulled towards that soul. And they won't know why. They'll only know that that soul is important to them for some reason. And they have a choice. They can choose to reach out and touch that soul. Unlocking its true potential. And that's what it means to be touched. All of our heroes were told at one point that they were touched. And that's why they were chosen to help Zoltan back in the day. But touched literally means a god has touched your soul. <clears throat> it was through these two brothers that Merged Worlds was created. A world of perfectly ordered chaos. But still, there were things to be done. There were things to prepare. Again, Zoltan began moving the pieces towards their goals. Over and over he tried, searching for the right combination of souls. And each time it was wrong, everything started over again. The merge happened. Now our heroes remember that. In the moment that they freed Omniana, they saw around them tons of people that they knew they didn't know in different groups and different sets. 
And at that point, it had been told to them that everything they'd done had been done before. But they were the first one to succeed. Finally, again, he succeeded. And you all together freed Omniana from the artifacts. And then the game began. Now aware of their presence, the other gods were furious at what Omniana had done. But once they heard of the game, and that they too were invited to play, well, that was too much for most of them to turn down. They began to choose their champions, those who would represent them in the game. They were free to choose anyone, any soul on this vast new plane of existence, all except one. For in the moment Seraph was conceived, in that tiny fraction of a second, when his soul was created, something happened that had never happened in all of creation. For it was in that moment that Omnion and Anyana both reached out and touched him, creating for the very first time a single soul touched by two gods. The ability to affect both chaos and order. And the game officially began. The game for your son's very soul. Everything Omniana had done was bet on this one man. And he will one day have to make a choice. And that choice will determine the winner and the fate of everything. You can imagine, they're speechless. That's a lot of weight to get thrown on you. That the entire reason worlds were blown apart and reforged into a new plane of existence was a gamble over who Seraph would pick as the winner. The perfect combination of souls not just to free Omnion, Omniana, but to also ensure Seraph's birth. That only one person before ever knew was coming before them. Draven's mother saw it in a very powerful vision. Finally, after several moments of silence, Deacon was allowing them to absorb everything he'd just said, of course. Dandy asks, and our children are part of this as well? Yes, says Deacon. Each is a chosen who will all have their parts to play, as well as all the other chosen by the gods. There are many more out there. Another moment of silence. And Darsh says, I'm going to kill him. Mercy turns loose. Who? That gray bastard. 
this whole time using us like toys, putting our children into this? I swear, if such a thing can be done, I will find a way to cut out his heart. And Darsh means that. This is no idle, I'm mad threat. And I can guarantee you, Darsh is going to start looking for a way. And if there's a way to kill a demigod, Darsh swears he's going to find it. So, they've just been told all this. Seraph from the future sent Deacon from the future to kill current Seraph, but not now. Future Seraph, but not as future as Seraph that sent him back. Halfway Seraph. In case he makes the wrong choice. And that someone else, someone who's supposedly tried to kill Seraph many, many times, of course, that might mean that he's not tried to kill him many, many times now but will kill him, try to, many, many, many times in the future. And realizing he can't, comes back here. But vanity makes him try at least one more time when Seraph is a baby. But again, fate keeps that from happening. All of this that Seraph one day will make a choice. And it'll be up to their parents and the kids and the people he meets along the way to help shape him into the type of person that will make the right choice. Or things will happen to derail that path and make him pick the wrong choice. And doing so, according to this deacon, could be the end of everyone. Because then in that moment they all have to once again look at those couple of lines. For the last of his line will be a great king. Or, and sorry, and the last of his line will be a great king. For he shall be the child of destiny. It never says if he'll be a good king or a bad king. It just says he's going to be a king. I guess his path will help determine which one that is. So, as a brief aside, I have mentioned several times in the past that this section of the story, before this, the very first section, the Fire Moon story that started all this, was Brothers Under a Flaming Moon. And then the section that led all the way up through episode 60 was called Fate of the Touched, which was all their adventure up until this point. And this section was called Path of the Chosen. And now hearing what I've just said today should help point as to why I called it that. Now I still have a little ways to go. We're probably going to get done a little early today. And that's okay. I thought that might happen. This may be closer to just like a two hour 
two hour fifty minutes at most episode. Uh, this will probably be one of the shortest ones we have, but that's was expected. It's mostly story today. Starting next week, we get into much more active things. But I'm not done yet. There's still more to talk about, if you will. So now Dandy asks a question that they've been alluding to and been dancing around for a while. So again, what of this dark figure? How is he involved in all this? Who is he? Why does he want this? If you remember, earlier Deacon said the why is easier than the how. Or than the who, I'm sorry. And he says that this man is a being of untold evil and a minion of death, a necromancer and sorcerer, most foul, and yet incredibly powerful. But that's to be expected. The gift of magic runs strong in my family. I'll give you a minute on that one. The gift of magic runs strong in my family. And then I lost my place. Give me a second. Here we are. <laughs> well, that's a slap in the face, right? Mercy, of course, has to ask your little brother? Because you remember the whole reason the kids were supposed to go to the kingdom of Firemoon was to help celebrate the first birthday of Deacon's younger brother, Alexander. But Deacon raises his hand and says, No, not my brother, thank the gods. My cousin. Because you see, before your final battle with my uncle Nylat, he spent quite a bit of time allied with a certain group of drow. And during that time, it seems he sired a son with one of the drow priestesses. My cousin, the half drow, was raised by them, taught, not in the best ways. But he too learned to control the dark magics he found himself able to wield. I have fought against him many, many times. And Darcy goes, Nylat had a son. Yes. Vincentius Firemoon, half drow. They're all shocked. Dandy goes, Does Rafe know? Not yet, but it will be revealed in time. So, I'd like to do a 
very recent callback to last episode, you'll remember that when Tevin was running, fighting his way through the undead to get to the lake to help Draven and the kids, he came across a dark figure, cowled, did not see the figure's face. But after a moment of looking at each other, the person opened a portal and disappeared. I always knew that the Fire Moon name would work its way back into the story. It had to. No way I could not do that. So this dark person, this person of darkness, I'd like to reference that Nylat is was known as darkness for a long time. There was a lot of hints there I threw out hoping somebody would pick up on it. Uh, this minion of darkness who also worships death and has a very strange and powerful hatred for not just Seraph, but Mercy and their children, Dandy, their children. They're the ones who killed his father. I think it's safe to say he would hold a bit of a grudge from that. Alright. Let me get to where we were. So all of this has been laid out to them. They've been told who he is, why he's here, and they believe him. At least him saying who he is, they can see that. They were told why the world came into existence, all because of them and their kids, specifically Sarah. But all their kids are part of that. And they've been told that there's someone out there who wants to kill them all, and their children, and who wants to kill Seraph, but he can't. So he's going to do what he can to corrupt him. And Seraph has the potential to be corrupted. You will always equally be pulled by chaos and order. His potential, the capability to affect both. And that person is the son of one of their most hated enemies, who they fought and killed some of their friends. A lot of, a lot of red strings on that connecting pins on a board, right? Yeah. And I will say, each time I made those references in the past, it's because this was coming. I've known this is where the story was going to go for it. Back when I was writing the stories for the Visani Stones, when Draven first came into the picture. As soon as, as soon as, as soon as, I'll tell you, the day that we played the game and Artemis first met Draven on that hill on the, on the side of the Valley of Sacrifice, her turn on watch, and he had some of the stones and nobody else woke up, and Artemis decided not to tell her friends about them. I hadn't planned for that. I assumed she would say something, but she didn't. She never could really tell me a reason why. She just didn't. And 
that's what got the that that's where the, my mind went with that story at that point. That's where I already had an idea of the future and <clears throat> some of that stuff, but that's where Seraph came into being. Was one of these days I'm going to bring this all together. So I've been planting seeds throughout the story, little places here and there, such as the drow that they're chasing, all that stuff. Yeah, all of that's linked together. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> and there's going to be more as we come across. <clears throat> So finally, at this point, Deacon says to them, So will you do as I ask and send the children to Fire Moon? And Dandy asks, Can you tell us what will happen there? Can you tell us the fates of our children? You've gone into great detail that Seraph will live to one day make this choice. But what about our kids? What about our children? Will they live to see that day? What are their fates? Can you share that with us? Deacon says, no, I cannot. Already too much has been changed. And the more you know of that, the more chances dire consequences could have. Because he did say at the beginning of all this that he should never have have to had this conversation. Things escalated quicker than he thought. And his hand was being forced. And then Mercy asks, So if we send them as you ask, they might be hurt? Or they could die? And Deacon just says, If you do not, I guarantee you, they will die. Most horribly. Implied not like right away. Then we have no choice, do we? Says Artemis. And Deacon smiles. How well he knows you. He said you'd be the one to say that. And he told me to tell you this. It is your choice, Artemis. It's always been your choice. And Artemis just literally jaws open because those words like that have been <laughs> haunting her longer than the prophecy <clears throat> and in that moment Artemis connects something she never had before never when they all met the monks and they were going to get the final Visani stone they all had to pass through a test and in her, she was taken to a place where the world was falling apart and everyone was dying of plague and disease. And the clerics were the first to go. She tried to help a child when someone from across the street, another alley, blocked that spell. Artemis chased her. And they fought in the sewers. This woman was an old crone, bald of head. And at the end of it, the end of the fight when she reached down to you know, loot the body, but technically to, to see what it was. The woman wasn't completely dead yet and grabbed her wrist. Part of her robe came open and she saw the little blood teardrop tattoo that she received from Draven's broken magical necklace. The exact same place it was on her chest. And she says, it was my choice. This was always my choice. 
And this entire time, she always thought that if she didn't make the right choice in the moment when she stabbed Draven with the crystal dagger and took the life of the man she loved to end the life of the man she loathed, that that would be the future of her world. But in this moment, she realizes that could be what happens if Seraph makes the wrong choice. The context of that entire, almost you could say, prophecy is completely changed in this moment. And yeah, I planned that. <laughs> be honest, yeah, I planned that. <laughs> it was supposed to make her think it was that. And that that future was past because she was willing to give up Draven. <clears throat> Artemis has, of course, the flashback to that memory. She's also heard those words several times. They keep coming back to haunt her. And if you were here at the beginning of last episode, I started with a letter written by Seraph. And at the end of that letter, he answered it. It was my choice. It's always been my choice. So at this point, Deacon says, Time is short. And he must leave soon. The sun is about to rise. There's an interesting callback. <clears throat> Does sunlight hurt him? Mm, doesn't hurt Seraph. Doesn't hurt Draven. Seemed to have an effect on Shastra, who was made by Daedalus. They don't ask and he doesn't answer. But obviously it's something that pops in their mind. Time is short and I must leave soon. The sun is almost up. Once I am gone... You will not see me again for a very long time. There are other matters I must attend to. But I cannot stress this enough. You must send the children. And you must do so without sharing anything you've learned tonight with anyone, including your spouses or your children most especially. Doing so can undo everything. Every new person that knows is a chance that something could be changed. You cannot share what you've learned tonight. I'm already taking a big enough risk talking to you. But you must also let your children follow their hearts. Encourage any interest they have. You never know what might make a difference in the time that comes ahead. And that's a little uh, ominous. You never know what they get into now might be important later. Just saying. Lastly, says Deacon, and this is the most important thing. There will come a time when your children will want to leave you. For whatever the reason may be, they will feel it is time for them to go out in the world themselves without you. And when that time comes, you must let them go. 
regardless of the danger, regardless of how hard it will be, you must let them go. And you must also remember to continue to live your lives as well. As Zoltan warned, you also have important parts to play. Do not let what you've learned here today rule you. Act as you feel is correct. Act for what you feel is right. Not out of fear of what might happen. That will be the hardest thing for you. So at that point, he's, he prepares to leave. And he says, I know I've put a lot on you tonight. And I've asked you to put a lot of trust into someone you've wanted to kill for a very long time. But that only reason I did that is because I know you're strong enough to handle this. Again, you will not see me for a very long time. I'm putting a lot of trust in you. Please don't make me be wrong for doing so. I don't want to. But I will if I have to. And then wishing them well, he walks towards the wall and right through it. As he's about to hit, they see some type of portal-like void appear on the wall and he walks right through and it closes behind him. He just does like a, a single hand gesture. Remember, Deacon is also training to control his wild magic. And you think about that. Magic runs strong in his family. Born with the ability to tap into wild magic. Trained to fight with Seraph by Draven. I'd like to make the callback. During the fight, it was as if every move Draven took, he already knew what he was going to do. All of that. And then he gets turned by Seraph. And all of that gets magnified. Opens a portal and walks through the wall, ignoring every single protection spell on this place. Of course, they take some time to talk amongst themselves, right? That's a lot. They talk with Darsh, they discuss it, and of course, they, as they said, yes, they're going to send the children. They believe what Elder Deacon has said. And if that's true, and their people died to stop them from going, more the reason to send them, to not let that be used against them. Is there a chance this Deacon was lying? Maybe manipulating them? Possibly. There's no way to know. But in the moment, they believe him. And so they're agreed, yes, we're going to go ahead and send the children. Even though they know something's going to happen there. That starts Seraph on whatever this path is. They're going to take that gamble. Now, originally, the children were to go with only one person. Flynn who is a Knight of Serenity, was her squire for years, and has become very... He's, he still helps oversee the area of Serenity itself. Flynn was to be the only one going with them. So, talking about it, they're like, okay, we're not supposed to send him with us. We're still going to send Flynn. Because that's what we were going to do anyways. 
and they talked about it, okay? This is when we were going to send them. This is what was going to happen. We need to try to adhere to those plans as much as possible. We may have to change the reasoning because all our spouses are not going to be happy about this. And it literally rips them all up inside that they can't tell their spouses about this. Right? All this they learned. They can't tell Draven. They can't tell Michael. They can't tell Ulrich. And they can't tell Lyra. can't tell any of the kids. So they're going to have to lie. And that's not something they do to their spouses very often or very easily. They discuss plans. Darsh understands and says, yes, in this, he's putting his full faith in mercy when it comes to Maeve's uh, care and such. He's like, you know, this is what was going to happen anyways. I trust that any choice you make for her uh, will be the right choice. Reach out to me if you need to. But in a moment where a decision needs to be made, I, I, I have complete faith in whatever you think is right. I will back that up. Which, of course, Mercy appreciates. Would do the same thing with, with Darsh, right? And as I mentioned the last episode, other than Serenity or Darshtopia, Fire Moon was probably the safest place in the world for them. Because Rafe is a very loyal friend. And no slouch. He's got some powerful friends as well, remember. Eventually, after discussing what they need to, they make their way back to the temple. Um, I remember there were multiple people locked up inside of uh, Artemis's chamber there. All the children were there. Tevin, right? Uh, Michael and Draven and all of those folks were there. The kids, even Deacon, was crashing in there. Um, Quan and Ulrich are there as well. So when they reach back, when they get there, you know, it's morning now. Some of them are up and going. The kids are up and moving. Of course, you know, the kids, they bounce back easy. They all gather. You know, the kids are eating breakfast or doing whatever. The, the parents all kind of gather in one of Artemis's chambers or living quarters where they can sit. And Mercy, they come together and they're like, we've talked about it. We talked about it with Darsh last night. We've decided we're still going to allow the children to go to Kingdom of Fire Moon. And of course, all the spouses are like, what? Um, no. Are you kidding? Now? In the middle of all this? He's out there? You can imagine Draven, right? Draven's very unhappy about this. Especially because he has to say, even that guy who whooped my butt is out there? And you want to send the kids away? And they're like, yes. And we want to send him just with Flynn like we originally planned. And they're like, more what? Excuse me? Shouldn't we surround them with everyone we have? And Mercy says, we did. Last night. And we all saw what happened. And they're like, well, okay, we get that. But we didn't know things were coming. We didn't know to be up in this and that. And they said, that's part of the problem. That's part of the issue. We weren't prepared for this. We've always feared Oramon. And when Oramon passed, we got lax. We got lazy. We can't have that. Things need to change for the better, and they need to change quickly. And we need to better protect serenity from outside and potentially from within. And over the next couple of weeks, especially concerned, we don't know if there are any vampires or what else still might be in the city. I think that we need to do a search for that. And Manandra and Draven, you're the best things we have for that. No, I can't. We agree. 
so you can't go. Ulrich and I will be needed here. They're like, what about Dandy? Dandy needs to stay here as well. With what happened, any hunter in the area is going to be coming this direction. While you and Draven are searching the city, Dandy needs to make sure they're armed and they're prepared. Her store needs to be open. If anything, you and your your skill, we need not only that, we're going to need some of that for other people as well. There could be more undead out here. We have worked out a military that has partnered warriors and mages together in a way never seen before, creating an incredibly powerful force of, of good, really, of army of good. And it didn't do us a lot of good yesterday. I think we might also need to consider finding a place for the clergy as part of our regiments as well. This is something they discussed in the room. If there were beings up there and their main villain, their main guy they had to deal with, is someone who's a necromancer and can summon and control large amounts of undead, even though it might be a change, they still have to do what they think is right. He did say that. Do what you think is right. Maybe we need to start bringing, not all of them, obviously, but maybe we need to open that up as an opportunity. The Templars are already trained to work with clerics. Our warriors could learn to do the same. There are paladins in there. Now I need to point out Weston the paladin was not here for this festival. I never mentioned that last episode and someone did ask me in an email. Weston was not there. Weston would have been an amazing force. There were several other paladins that were there just for whatever reason. They, maybe they're stopping by the temple. Maybe they live there. Weston's by far the most powerful paladin that they know. Um, Weston will be returning in the near future. He was supposed to return during the festival, so he'll be back in the next few days, and you can imagine how livid he's going to be to find out he missed that. Not like in a, ooh, I wish I could be part of that, but, oh my god, I wish I could have been here to help. This is exactly what I'm here for. This is why I exist. Fight for truth and to fight for the life. The light. So after some long discussion, the spouses grudgingly agree to their plan. Because yes, while they're here dealing with that, Firemoon would be one of the most protected places that their kids could be. And it's really far from here. So if there are problems here, and Mr. Man in the Hat is still floating around here, because they all think he's still evil. Maybe he still is. If he's still in the area, having the kids far away while we look for him might also be a good thing. So they agree, yes. The next couple days, they'll prepare everything. They obviously aren't going to be able to completely fix the festival, but they're going to do what they can to get the flame lit, let people know that it was, you know, only through us working together did we once again, you know, that kind of motivational thing to bring people back, try to, you know, deal with what has happened. It'll bring a new meaning of sacrifice for this specific holiday. And then they've got to start working on increasing Serenity's security and safety. And that might mean the kids aren't just walking around town by themselves anymore. Or it still might. 
kids still need to have their path. But they all agree that yes, in several days' time, Deacon was to return home anyways, and they still have to explain what happened to Deacon's father. I'm sure that at this point, and I never really talked about it, but there's some type of communication device they have. They will notify him and say, he's coming home in a few days. I can send him back if you want him back right now. And Rafe would be like, no, I trust you. I mean, you know, he's okay. These things happen. You know what I mean? He's hiding from the TV until you're done. Well, we're going to be done a little early today. So he won't have to wait super, super long. Uh, but uh, when they reach out to him, Rafe is just that. He's like, you know, they have, again, they have some type of magical way to do so. Over the many years and the fact that there's a mage tower here, they would have found some way to talk to, to Rafe Firemoon in case of emergency. And they're like, hey, this is what happened last night. Your son is okay. Yes, he was hurt a little bit. He's fine now. We still would like to send... And probably tell them the same thing. We would like to send the children while we're dealing with this and making sure there's no leftovers of problems here. Is it okay if we still send the kids? And Rafe's going to be like, hell yeah, send the kids. Send the kids over here. Man, you can move them in for the next year if that's what you need. If that's what's going to make... You know, is that what you need to make sure that it's safe for them there? Yes, 100%. And I trust you and that you'll get Deacon home to me in one piece kind of thing. Which they do. So they don't rush it. They're... There is some hint, well, maybe we should send them right now if it's so important. And they're like, no, we want to send them on the same day we were going to send them before. And so they're having to walk that line. It's important that they go, but not important enough that they go today. They still need to wait seven days because they would have left the day after the festival. It's a lot of tap dancing here. And you can imagine the amount of bending the truth, stretching that they're having to do here. And they don't like this, especially Artemis. And Mercy. Who worships the god of truth? Has spent most of her life fighting against the goddess of lies and deceit. And she's having to lie to the people she loves the most. This is not a position that she wants in. But it is something that she's strong enough to do if she has to. And so she does. When the children hear this, they're overjoyed. Because you can imagine kids. Wow, that was really scary. Man, now we're not going to go on our trip. Like That's how kids are, right? A tornado went through and destroyed all our houses. Oh, man, we're not going to go to Disney World now. It's just how kids view things, right? This was to be their first time away. They were super stoked. They've been excited about it for weeks. So when they found out that they still get to go, and they probably throw the same info there, we think it's safer for you to be over there for a little while when we make sure there's no leftovers of evil kicking around town. Uh, we're, we're letting you go with Flynn like we thought. And Flynn, and they, they stressed to Flynn, you're going there, number one, because you, you need to give Rafe way more detail on what happens. He deserves to know everything we know. Within reason. And you're there in case they need things. But the children were to have some freedom while they're there. Deacon has a decent amount of freedom in his own kingdom. You know, Deacon wants to go to this. He doesn't have to have bodyguards and things. Rafe trusts him, and he's going to trust the kids somewhat, you know? So if if Flint is like, no, the kids are okay, I'm here if they need me, you don't need to spend every second overlooking them. I know you want to. You love artists and the kids as much as we do. You've got to give them some space. They went through a lot here yesterday. A lot. that They should not have had to deal with this early in their lives. 
they need some time to, to be free and get that other system. So be there for them. But don't be there with them every second. Give them the time. And take some time for yourself. He was looking forward to that. Flynn has never been to the Kingdom of Firemoon. He's never been there. He's one of the few knights that hadn't. And he was excited to go. It's during this conversation as well that Mercy says, we're sending our kids. But remember, there's one other person there with a kid. Ran was originally supposed to go as well. And Mercy goes, well, of course we can't... Because I would never dream to tell you what to do with your child. I think it would be in his best interest to go with the other kids. Because if he has to stay and all the other ones go, so on and so forth. But um, we respect whatever decision you make. Because they're not going to make command him to send his kid away. But he agrees. He goes, no, I think, you're, I think your information is sound. And if you believe that this is the best thing... Because again... This is one of the knights, and most importantly, probably the head knight now that Ulrich's a husband. Uh, it's one of those things where he's like, if you think this is for their best, then that's fine. We'll send him as well. He does ask for permission to move his wife into the city and into the keep temporarily while they search the area. There could be more undead out there. Um, he's one of the few people of the knights that, you know, because most of the knights have some type of employees. I want not servants per se, but people they hire. Look at them somebody you have they all they all have their own house kind of thing right now. They're like lords, small lords if they would, they're nobles. So um, they've got homes, they probably got, you know, a steward, somebody looks after their stables, things like that. Maybe a maid, maybe a cook, stuff like that. He's one of the few that doesn't. It's just him and his wife and his son. He and his wife do everything together. That's they live a very simple life. They have a very nice home, but it's a very simple life compared to many of the others because that's just how he views life should be. That's he's, he doesn't need that kind of things, right? He does, you know, he has stuff. I mean, you know, he's still not poor. Plenty of food, plenty of this, plenty of that. But they they don't have a lot of servants and such. Um, but as such, he also doesn't have a lot of guards on his property, and um, maybe you know a couple that just regular guards that go around, you know, on their watching over everywhere and then come by and make sure his wife's okay when he's not there. Uh, but he's like, I'd like to move her into the keep just temporarily till we know that at least the threat's on the outside because runners have already been sent to the other towns. Did anywhere else get attacked? Some of those towns are a day or two away. They have to wait back on that. For all they know, undead could be attacking somewhere else. They're waiting on, on that type of information. So he wants his wife to be safe um, and nearby. So she's like, of course, of course. You lived here temporarily while you were building the house. You just right back into your room, dude, 100%. The only one who doesn't have a house house, per se, is Seamus and Miyasha, because they own the inn, which has its own house built into it. So they live in the inn. Or in the out. Out the inn. Hmm. So that, of course. So he agrees that Ran will go with them. Um, but he'll bring his family back in. Uh, let's see. Did I miss anything else here? Uh, in case, yes. So the kids are very excited that they still get to go. Um, they're all healed up by now. As many clerics they have at their disposal, they're they're healed up. But um, they're prepped and they're like, excellent, we still get to go? Cool, can we pack our stuff? Because they're first thing like, so is, is everybody coming with us? And they're like, no, just Flynn will be going. Everyone will be needed here to make sure that the city is you know cleansed of any remaining evil. So it'll be just you with Flynn, and while you're there, uh, Flynn is there to support you and help you if you need anything. He also has the wallet, if you will. I mean, he'll have money. It'll be like, if you need... Co the kids will have coins. None of them are from a poor family. 
Like you'll have some money to spend while you're there. I'm assuming that parents give them some type of allowance, maybe for doing well in school or chores or whatever. I mean, they're all being raised well. So, you know, they're being sent with some money. They're going to be going to Kingdom, get to, you know, it's like going on vacation. There's going to be shopping, maybe buy things they've never seen. Maybe they want to bring home, you know, souvenirs for so-and-so. So they're very excited to go there, although most of their needs, meals and such, will be dealt with by Fire Moon. You can be sure Deacon and his dad want to impress upon them since he's been taking care of so much while he's there. Um, but, you know, if you need extra money and such, Flynn will have access to some. You just go talk to Flynn and he'll help you out. But he's not going to be on your time. I trust you, you know, I, I trust you all to be respectful and to behave while you're there. And then Seraph gets a little uncomfortable because when Artemis says this next thing, she almost chokes up a little bit. Hey, Paul. Hey, man. This is a huge episode, dude. I really, really want to hear your thoughts after this one, please. It's super important. I know what you think. <laughs> this will be a shorter one. I'm actually done in a couple minutes. Um, but Seraph feels a little odd because his mom chokes up a little bit when she says, when you go, you know, be the do behave and I'm going to trust you to look after the other children they're your friends but you're the oldest you're responsible for them make make sure that everybody stays safe he's like of course mother sure I mean he's probably heard that before you're the oldest and clearly the strongest I mean in a straight up fight he could probably wipe the floor of all of them Deacon probably being the only one who might give him a couple minutes of sparring, but he could probably wipe the floor of all of them. They're not super powerful spellcasters and clerics yet. They've got very limited, mostly just what you'd call, uh, oh, what are those spells called that you get for free? Yeah, you know what I mean. Um, so just the real basic stuff, not real combat oriented. Although Maeve could probably knock a tooth out if she squirt, <laughs> got a big enough hit. Maeve is big and strong. She is. Um, but yeah, so he's you know he feels responsible in this situation, and so he's like, okay, cantrips. Thank you, Ashley. Cantrips. That's mostly what they have at this point. Um, so maybe a little heal here and there for the, for the clerks. But uh, overall, it's one of those things where he he's already felt responsible for them, and now the the events that going on, he's taking that a little more seriously. He's like, you know, because he's a serious kid, yeah, like any kid, he has his goofy moments, but he's mostly serious, and he's like, this is my responsibility. Okay, I'll make sure that everybody gets home safe. And they begin to prep to try to salvage what little they can of the festival. Um, and you can imagine, there's still tens of thousands of people there trying to make money. Uh, there's still going to be that going on. Maybe not as much as before, and a lot of people will leave. But there's still some festival to be had. Artists, later that day, still gets to relight the flame. There's a large gathering of people there. Big cheering. It's kind of mercy gives another speech of how together last night they've proven everything that she'd spoken about before that together there's no force that can defeat them and blah 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 all that kind of stuff and then art she did give this speech from the park next to the kids where the fire is not on the other side but she did give that speech and they lit the flame again because the flame should have been lit yesterday and it's important that things don't change from the way they would have been and for a while, if not forever, any time they do something, in the back of their head they have to think, would I have been doing this 
if I didn't know what I know now. And that's a level of fear and uncertainty that I can't personally relate to. Uh, I can't imagine how much pressure that would be. Yeah, well, that's going to be the end for today. Uh, like I said, we're stopping a little bit early today. Uh, I knew we probably would. This was a lot of me telling a story and not a let, as many bullet points things. So um, we're going to stop a little bit early today. Um, but, yeah, I really enjoyed telling the story. Last week ended on a cliffhanger. This week, not so much. But next week... The children will be taking a trip to the Kingdom of Fire Moon. And, hmm, I wonder if anything cool will happen there. <laughs> Smitty, I didn't get a chance to check, but I'm going to find out for you later tonight. Keep an eye on the Discord within the next hour or so. I'll hop on and find out. I apologize. I didn't get a chance to check that today. But I will check that for you, and I'll post it in the Discord within the next hour. Okay? Promise I'll check on it for you. Sorry I didn't get it done sooner. I will find out. Uh, but thank you all very much for coming once again uh, to watch another one of my Merge World Dungeons & Dragons story stream podcast things um, and letting me tell this story. And I've loved spending the last year and a half, almost two years telling this story and getting to share this with you guys. But having the opportunity to tell you what was going to happen what was always meant to happen, where the seeds I planted eventually grew, having the opportunity to finally almost get this off my chest, if you will. I really appreciate that. And uh, I could have never got there if you folks weren't watching and liking, subscribing and following and all of that stuff and help supporting the channel. Um, thank you for letting me do this. I'm working on potentially some more D&D &D content that will be popping in to the channel soon. I'm not going to say anything yet because I'm not sure if it's going to work, but I'm, I'm looking at something. Um, but uh, thank you for letting me tell the story. I cannot wait to follow this storyline and let you guys see where it's going to go. Alright? Thank you very much for coming. Like this if you enjoyed it. Subscribe if you're new to the channel. If you're listening to this on iTunes or Spotify, love the hell out of you too. If you can give it a like, a follow, a sub, a rating, a review. If you wouldn't mind taking a moment on Apple or Spotify, whichever one you're doing it on, and uh, you know, rate it. Give it five stars. Write a little review of uh, what you think of the story. Something that might somebody checking that review might want to see. I would love to get this in front of more people's eyes. Uh, it means a lot to me, and I want to share it with as many people as I can. So thank you so much for your support. Thank you all for hanging out with me, and I will see you again next Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for a little bit more Merged Worlds. All right, you folks have yourselves a wonderful day.